Today's scripture reading comes from Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Good afternoon. My name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here on staff at Exilic, and we're so glad that you could join us for Sunday service today. Uh, Just as it was mentioned uh, just a moment ago, we are starting a new series um, at the pulpit at our church called The Ten Commandments. And uh, yes, we are calling it The Ten Commandments. We're not going to hide behind some cleverly devised title uh, to disguise the fact that we want to recognize that we have divine commandments, divine directives from our God telling us how He wants us to live And probably because of that, uh, this sermon series is not going to be very attractive or popular um, as a sermon series, especially in the context of our city today, Uh, because the average New Yorker's impression probably of God's law is just that, do's and don'ts, policies, both large and fine print. Uh, We probably have a million policies governing the use of our copy machines at our work, And so we don't want any more rules. We don't want any more policies. Um, And that's probably what the impression is. But through this series, we hope to demonstrate that the law is beautiful, that it has merit, and it's meant to give life. And one of the ways that we can start to think that and know that and recognize that is by knowing the following. Uh, For ancients, for the ancients, the law was always given by a king. Uh, Kings were the ones who gave laws, uh, just like Pharaoh was a king, and he gave laws to his people. Um, And and so what we know is that because God is giving the law, he is doing the work of a king as a king. Uh, He's giving the law as a lawgiver, as a king. But the difference between King Pharaoh and God, the creator, was that Pharaoh, among many other things, was that Pharaoh was a king who gave laws to his slaves and subjects. But God was a king, or is a king, who gave laws to his children. And all throughout the the scriptures, we're told that we are children of God. Uh, God refers to his people as the children uh, who belong to him. And so God is not giving the law as just or merely a king, but he's giving the law as a father. And so you have to look at this sermon series as this, that God is calling a family meeting with us, okay? He's calling a family meeting in the living room for his children. And we are adopted children in the scriptures. It's a common theme that we're adopted, that we are brought into this household uh, that formerly wasn't. And so it's a gracious father who's calling his adopted children into the living room for uh, a family meeting to tell them that he loves them, to tell them that they belong to him, that they have access to everything in the house, including, of course, the Father himself, whenever they need. And now, because he loves them, he he wants to go over some house rules um, so that there can be an equilibrium, or in the Hebrew word, uh, we call it shalom, that there would be a peace, that there would be a wholeness, an equilibrium in the home. That's how we need to see this. Uh, What we're getting at here is the heart of our God, uh, a lawgiver who is also our great father. A quick intro to the Ten Commandments, and we'll be on our way to the first commandment here. But uh, in, the, in the Old Testament, the first five books of 
the Old Testament called the Torah, uh, there are 613 laws in, in there. And uh, that number is significant because uh, for the ancients, there were 365 days, 248 known bones and main organs. And so the idea was that with every part of your body every day, you'd be obeying God and striving for obedience. Um, the summary of the law is contained in the Ten Commandments. So you kind of take all the 600 plus commandments and you find in the Ten Commandments a summary of them. Um, and in the Ten Commandments, we see this twofold structure, okay, twofold structure. The first four laws pertaining to our vertical love and devotion to God, and then the remaining six pertaining to our love for our neighbors. And uh, really, the great commandment, if you remember it, is what? Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And so that's how we see consistent um, all throughout the scriptures of the Ten Commandments, all the law, that it's all about love and how love is the fulfillment of the law according to apostle paul in romans 13 so now the first commandment the commandment at hand you shall have no other gods before me uh so important this first one actually it's it's kind of crucial that we understand this uh, martin luther that german protestant reformer said this this commandment is the very first of all commandments and the highest and the best the one from which all others proceed in which they exist and by which they are judged and assessed. Meaning that every law to follow in the Ten Commandments, where, uh, when distilled to the core issue, is a question of whether there was an infraction or an obedience to this first commandment. Um, said another way, if we, let's say, break, uh, you shall not commit adultery, it's actually because you, by default, broke this first commandment. Uh, you shall have no other gods. And this is how it works. Uh, this commandment is all about, all about soul devotion. You shall have no other gods before me. It's about a soul devotion. And the devotion that God requires of his people can be characterized by the following three things, which are the three points of the sermon. Uh, our devotion to God should be characterized by liberty, exclusivity, and fidelity. Liberty, exclusivity, and fidelity, meaning that our devotion should say, freely you, God, only you, God, and always you, God. Let's first uh, look at that first characteristic, uh, liberty. Uh, I think we'd all agree that we have to be free to love someone, right? That's true. Uh, but at the onset, I want to make the distinction that I'm not talking about being free to choose someone, as in the freedom of choice. Uh, what I'm talking about, rather, is being free from other lovers and devotions to be able to love someone else. Uh, imagine with me for a moment that you're dating someone and you've dated that person for six months. But it's only at that point and only then that the person tells you that they're married. That's a little bit of a problem, right? Uh, because generally speaking, the presence of other lovers can complicate things to say the least. There's going to be a jealousy that's always present, um, a suspicion about everything. You're going to secretly check uh, that person's uh, text history. I mean, it's a serious ball and chain to the new relationship. It's enslavement. 
It's slavery. The only way that we can be freed to love is if we're freed to love. The only way that we can be free to love is if we are freed to love. That is, freed from former and other lovers and devotions. In other words, in order to be free lovers of God, we need to be liberated from the baggage of other, former, other or former lovers and devotions. And so notice, even before we get into the actual Ten Commandments, there's an introduction we formerly call the preamble in the prologue, but it says this. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. Because you'll remember that the Israelites were in a land not their own. They were under the physical slavery of a foreign king, but they were spiritually in slavery because they worshipped false gods. Uh, They worshipped the sun god, the Nile god, Osiris, and the entire Egyptian pantheon of gods And so you could say they were in a relationship with other gods. And what God is trying to say is, I freed you from the baggage of those former devotions. You're free from that. So that there's nothing holding you back from having a soul devotion and relationship with me. Our devotion to God then is first and foremost characterized by freedom. And of course, this is a good segue into the second point, which says that our devotion to God, what God requires of our devotion, is a devotion that is exclusively between God and us. A devotion that says, only you, God. See, God does not desire an open relationship. He wants an exclusive one. It's the only way that a relationship can be wholehearted with full commitment. Otherwise, there will necessarily be a divided heart. But it seems like these days, no one likes the C word. It's like this dirty word. Commitment. Uh, Has all these negative associations of being tied down or losing your freedom. And I think basically, people don't want the rules or the code of ethics that govern committed relationships. There's so much that you have to do, right? And so people choose to have open relationships non-committed summer flings and one-night stands because they think that this is the more unfettered or unhindered choice without a code of ethics to govern it. But you know, actually, if you think about it, non-commitment requires just as much as, just as much commitment as a committed one does. Uh, Susan Dominus wrote a feature for the New York Times called, Is an Open Marriage a Happier Marriage? And she interviewed a number of married people who wanted to try out an open relationship in the marriage, even while they were still married. Uh, And to her surprise, actually, there were a bunch of rules that governed these open relationships that were in the marriage. Uh, All these boundaries and ethics, and this is uh, what she wrote. You'll find it in your bulletin. Monogamy is an approach to relationships built on one bright line rule. No sex with anyone else. Open relationships may sound like the more unfettered choice, but the first thing non-monogamous couples often do is draw up a list of guidelines. Rules about protection, about the number of days a week set aside for dates, about how much information to share. Some spouses do not want to know any details about the other spouse's extramarital sex. 
So you see, non-commitment requires just as much of a code of ethics as a committed one. It's not as unfettered as you might have expected. Additionally, I would say the intentional blinders that non-monogamous married folk, like in this article, put on to hide from the truth that their spouse is being in intimate with other people seems to me out of touch with honesty. So you can have your pick of either a committed relationship or not, but it's certain from the scriptures and certain from this commandment that the kind of devotion that God requires of his people is one that's exclusive, one that's a closed devotion. Uh, how many of us want to hear from that very special someone, uh, you're my one and only? Isn't that like what we kind of live for? Like that's what we want to hear. And in fact, that's, that's actually the most important thing you will ever hear in your life. It'll change your life when you hear those words for the better. Uh, who doesn't want to hear that? You're my one and only. Uh, married folks in here, you guys said that on the wedding day. Perhaps met, didn't hear it again after that, but we heard it, and it changed our lives. And for single people in here, this is what we need to hear, right? This is what we work for. This is what we long for. Of course we do. And actually, so does God. We're told in the scriptures that God is a jealous God, one who wants a wholehearted and undivided devotion. And so can we really blame God when he says, you shall have no other gods before me? It seems fitting of the kind of healthy relationship that we all long for. Finally, our devotion, as God requires it, should be characterized by fidelity. A devotion that says, Always you, God, no matter what the circumstance. True devotion needs to be unwavering in trust and loyalty. Devotion needs to be faithful, in other words. Devotion requires a staying and sticking power, especially when the road gets tough. And God wants that from us. He demands that of us. When the road gets difficult or we find ourselves in a depletion of resources or the destination to our lives seems unclear and out of sight. God wants to know that we won't be looking over at what we think are greener pastures, or to be enticed by other things that will promise to give us things we want. Because if you'll remember the context of the Ten Commandments, this was exactly the state of God's people. Uh, the road was difficult. They were depleted of resources like food and provision, and they were destination-less. They were in a desert for 40 years, no less. Uh, yes, God has freed his people, but into the desert. Now, why would God do that? There's nothing in the desert. But that's exactly the point. Because there's nothing in the desert other than God, he, he leads his people into it so that they can learn fidelity and devotion learn to rely and trust in God for everything. But how will they do that unless every superfluous and non-essential is stripped away? This is the reason for the desert. Now, oftentimes, God is going to strip from our possession things we counted on to give us happiness, 
things we counted on to give us satisfaction or fulfillment. Uh, perhaps it's an apartment that you thought was just perfect for you, but then God filled the day right before because uh, we waited a day to sign the lease application. And actually, that's a personal anecdote. Um, or maybe it's a promotion that came with a decent-sized office, but you were passed over for a colleague, and that colleague got that office and the promotion only because of favoritism, and you knew it was because of favoritism. Uh, and it's in these moments, and of course, they're, 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 in some ways, those might be kind of superficial examples, but they're, they're really hard-pressing difficulties in our lives, aren't there? Real hard-aching, tragic things in our lives that make the road difficult, that make us seem like we're depleted of these resources that we absolutely need, and the destination, we can't see it, it's not in sight. We all come to those moments, um, and we're tempted in those moments to pump up our fists at heaven and say, why God? Why me? Why the world? Why, why all of this tragedy? Why God? But the answer to the why question is actually another question. Was God really sufficient for you? Uh, will you continue in your devotion to God, even in the face of unfavorable circumstances and outcomes in your life? Uh, psycho psychotherapist Esther Perel, in her TED Talk called Rethinking Infidelity, explores how the soulmate mandate has changed the way we perceive and experience infidelity. And so we all know this concept of the soulmate, right? The person that we're destined to be with. And, and he or she is out there somewhere, but the soulmate exists. But Esther Perel is going to uh, demonstrate to us in her piece that because there is this idea of a soulmate, it actually colors our perception about infidelity. And in this way, you'll find it in your bulletin. We have a romantic ideal in which we turn to one person to fulfill an endless list of needs, to be my greatest lover, my best friend, the best parent, my trusted confidant, my emotional companion, my intellectual equal. And infidelity tells me I'm not. It's the ultimate betrayal. Infidelity shatters the grand ambition of love. Because of this romantic ideal, we are relying on our partner's fidelity with a unique fervor. But here's the kicker I want us to kind of focus on. But we also have never been more inclined to stray, that is, from our fidelity. And not because we have new desires today, but because we live in an era where we feel that we're entitled to pursue our desires because this is the culture where I deserve to be happy. And if we used to divorce because we were unhappy, today we divorce because we could be happier. And if divorce carried all the shame, today... Choosing to stay when you can leave is the new shame. Choosing to stay when you can leave some unfavorable or unhappy circumstance or outcome in your life, Peril says, is a shameful thing to do in our day and society. Why wouldn't you leave some unfavorable or unhappy circumstance? Uh, why don't you leave and go on to something that'll treat you better? Um, it's foolish and weak 
not to. Peril says that this is the new shame on us. It's the shame that the world will put on us if we stick and stay devoted to something that's going to cause us heartache if we're not going to stick. That's what Peril says. But actually, it's not anything new. It's not a new shame. Because choosing to carry the shame when things got tough and unfavorable was exactly what our Savior Jesus Christ did. This was the plan from all of eternity, that the Son of God would be shamed by binding himself to our pain and our punishment on the cross. Because, you know, when people saw Jesus crucified on the cross, they thought, what a fool, a pathetically weak fool who claimed to be God and a king. But, you know, we're, we're so very glad in faith because Jesus stuck it out through our suffering and the shame of his eventual death, his faithfulness to the Father's will and to the elect, because that's what saved us. When we couldn't be faithful to God, Jesus was faithful for us, and his merit becomes our credit. Faithful was and is our Lord Jesus Christ. And so our devotion to God was less than stellar, actually not existent, but while our devotion was not great, our God in his great love for us sent a great Savior to exemplify and to live a life of devotion even unto death. And so that now in the freedom from all these other lovers and devotions, we can want a devotion that says to God, freely you, only you, always you. Just a couple of application points as we wrap up here. Are you monogamish with God? Uh, not quite full monogamy, but monogamish. And actually, monogamish isn't monogamy. It's spiritual adultery uh, because we're sleeping with other gods or lovers or devotions. Uh, maybe one in particular, maybe many at the same time. But we need to assess our hearts are we monogamish with God? It's not what God calls us to. It's not what God requires. He requires a full and full-hearted devotion to him. And finally, be faithful. Take heart and be faithful to the Lord this week, uh, even when things get really tough. Uh, consider this time, perhaps, a time in the desert where God is trying to strip from you every superfluous and non-essential thing so that you can see him maybe for the first time in a long time. What is God trying to show you then about himself and about yourself? And take this time to learn about God's great love for you and his son, a love that was so devoted, that you, uh, devoted to you that it was at the cost of the life of his own Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. May Zillick be solely devoted to the one who is solely devoted to us first. Let's pray. Gracious and loving Father, we thank you that when we weren't faithful to you, when we weren't exclusively devoted to you, and we were still shackled by these former loves and devotions um, that we couldn't love you and be devoted to you, that while we couldn't, 
that you were for us in your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you and praise you. Help us by the power of the Spirit in our lives to be devoted to you this coming week and for the rest of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.